I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, unique insights into your favorite authors, plus keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I recently had the pleasure to speak with Gael Lalamere. She's the book buyer and inventory manager at Books and Books in Miami, which is, you know, one of the most prestigious independent bookstores in the country. And we talked about what's on their front table. Oh, and we talked about bunches of other stuff. So stay tuned after my conversation with Gael to hear my chat with author A.J. Jacobs, who talked to me about his latest book, It's All Relative, Adventures Up and Down the World's Family Tree. This chronicles A.J.'s three-year journey to help build the biggest family tree in history and trying to put together the biggest family reunion. But first, my discussion with Gael from Books and Books. We are joined today by Gael Lelamere, who is the book buyer and inventory manager at Books and Books in Florida. And for those of you who don't know Books and Books, it is, you know, a landmark independent bookstore that hosts probably 60 or so authors, has great cafes, was founded by Mitchell Kaplan, who's considered an institution among booksellers in the country. So it's definitely on the list of, you know, the top 25 or 50 bookstores that you ought to go visit. And um, Gael has been with uh, Books and Books since 2014. She was the store manager for a a bit in the uh, Miami bookstore, but now has the huge job of buying the books for all the stores. And we're, you know, having her join us for what um, we often call our what's on your front table so that we, you know, we get to find out independent bookstores, put books on the front table because they love them or they think they look good, but not because somebody paid them to put them on the front table. Um, so they represent a real a perfect distillation of what as listeners or readers, you might really want to know about. So we're delighted that Gael is joining us today. So welcome, Gael. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'll ask you a very easy question. Um, okay. How did you start in this industry? Um, it was kind of a circuitous route. I kind of, I've always been a reader, um, but I studied art history in college and when I found my way to Miami, I worked with Toshin, the um, art book publisher, mm. and helped them open their store here and spent a few years with them as a manager and kind of then found my way to Books and Books. I kind of just walked in one day and asked if they were hiring and kind of the rest is history. And I can't imagine really doing anything else. <laughs> this feels like not a book-related question, but as a native New Yorker, how do you find my how how is living in Miami after living in New York? It's very different. Um I think I mean I love New York. I grew up in New York City and I think after a while it was kind of no longer the place for me. It's changed a lot and I kind of figured I would just leave for a few years and I found my way to Miami and um it was a bit of a culture shock at first, I have to say. Mm. Just because it's so much less chaotic. The stress levels are way down. Just the pace of life is a little more normal, and it really only takes leaving a place to really notice mm. how kind of crazy it was. Um, 
But I mean, I was only going to come for a few years, and it's been eleven years now. So I think I think I made the right decision. So do you feel like a Floridian now? Um, I don't know. Us New Yorkers, it's kind of hard to shed that skin. So I consider myself both. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because I I thought about that when we moved from New York to Connecticut. I noticed how habits that I had that are generally related to speed of doing things or impatience oh, absolutely. were geographically appropriate in New York, but not appropriate in Connecticut. Not at all. I mean, I found myself slowing down a lot when I moved here, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Know? Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. Now, has your reading changed by moving from New York to Florida? I don't know that my reading has changed. I think being being more involved in the book business absolutely has changed my reading habits. Um, even being going from manager to book buyer, I think it was kind of night and day because as a manager, I would read mostly for pleasure. I mean, I always read for pleasure, but it was, it was, I have more discipline now as a buyer because I kind of have to, you know, I've set myself a goal of reading at least a book a week. And, you know, every time you meet with a publisher, you walk away with another 10 galleys. Yeah, that you want to read. Oh my God. And you have, you can't pick, you can't read all 10. <laughs> so you, it's hard to pick the right ones. So it's definitely, you know, and I also find myself reading very, you know, books that haven't come out yet or very recent releases. So it's kind of, mm. I often talk with other buyers that it's, I, it kind of makes me anxious that I'm not reading any kind of backlist titles anymore. You know, the other question is, does it take a little bit of the pleasure out of your reading no. because you feel uh, confined as to what you need to pick up to read? No. To be honest, I have a pretty wide range of what I, I don't stick to any kind of genre. So I've, I've been lucky enough that everything I know, know that I've needed to read, I've actually had pleasure reading it and I was glad I read it. So mm-hmm. for the most part, I read something that really, you know, kind of interests, interests me. And I don't, it hasn't happened that I'm kind of like, kind of trudging through a book. So you, you've met with the publisher's rep, and I know the feeling, because I used to buy the books at R.J. Julia. You come out of there with 10 books you feel like you need to read immediately. Mm-hmm. How do you decide among those 10 books what you're going to get actually read? You know, I, I don't mean to sound kind of hokey, but I think you pick the book and the book picks you, mm-hmm. you know? Like, sometimes you just have a certain feeling about a book and you can't really explain why. And that's never usually steered me wrong. And I don't know, you know, the reps, our reps are so fantastic. They know me, they know my sensibilities. So they usually lead me in the right direction as well. But I've always kind of believed that it's always going to come to you what what to read next. Mm. I, I, th- I think that's right. And do you find since you've been a bookseller or in the book industry that you finish less books? You know, I have a very strict rule that I always finish books. Ooh. I know. I mean, I'll read the first 10, 15 pages, and if it doesn't grab me right then and there, I won't continue. But You won't go 75 pages into once it. Once I get past, like, 50 pages, I need to, like, to me, I, always, I often find that the endings are just as important as the beginnings, and I, I can't really say that I know a book without knowing its ending, you know? Wow. I'm impressed. You know what? I, you know what I also think is interesting, Gael, that you said this is about the use of language. A lot of times, when I'm asked or I ask the question, "Do you finish everything you start?" 
they would say no, but they would count reading the 50 pages of having started and putting it down. But you've described it as once I'm 50 pages in. Oh, there's no going back. There's no going back. So no. really the answer is you are, you, you aren't finishing a lot of books, but your definition is 50 pages? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think it's a little arbitrary, but yeah. I, I give it a good test. Mm-hmm. And usually it's just, it takes two pages for me to know if the book is for me or not. You know, it's the style, it's the tone, it's the pace. Yeah. I, I usually have gotten pretty good at knowing what I'm ready for. And then sometimes I know that this is not a book for right now, that maybe down the line I'll be, it'll be a better fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I keep those books in a separate place where I think I want to get to them, but not for right now. Right, and I know that if I kind of force myself to read it now, I won't appreciate it in the way that I should. So what are you reading now? Um, right now, I'm actually reading a book that hasn't come out yet. Um, I just started it, so I don't know much about it, but it's called The Third Hotel by Laura Vandenberg. Hmm. It's coming out um, in August, and just a little glimpse of what it's about is a woman who travels to Cuba for a film festival and runs into her dead husband. Ooh. From what I've gathered, it's kind of like ghost story, very metaphysical. So it's, it's right up my alley. I kind of I love that kind of stuff, but I'm very excited about this one. And she's a Florida author, so we have to represent. Fabulous. And we were both in Ellen Gammerman's article in the yes. Wall Street Journal about the books coming out this winter that we were excited about. Share with us uh, the book that you picked. I picked uh, The House of Impossible Beauties by Joseph Kassara. This book actually just came out, uh, I want to say, at the beginning of February. Um, and he's a debut author, and I'm telling everybody about the, this book, anybody who will listen. <laughs> um, he, it's really a fictionalized account of the Harlem ball scene in 1980s, 1990s New York City. So, of course, the New York City angle already got me. Mm. If anybody's ever seen the um, documentary Paris is Burning, it's right. based on those, I mean, those are real people, and he kind of made a fictionalized account of it. So what it really was about is the lives of these transgender kids who kind of had been cast aside by their families, by society, who find each other in this Harlem ball scene where they become part of families. Mm. And it's just a story full of compassion, full of heart. You can tell the author is loves his characters so much. They're so carefully crafted. Uh, it, it really hit me how, you know, unforgettable this tale was. I mean, you would be laughing on one page and sobbing on the next. Mm, yeah, that's great. Gael, you're making me, every book you're mentioning, I, I now want to read. So yeah. <laughs> you're doing your job. So Gael, in your store, who decides what goes on the front table? When you're bu- meeting with the rep, do you code the book as a book that will go on the front table or does somebody else decide? Um, I usually, you know, our staff is really good at kind of figuring out based on the quantities that I order. Right. What to highlight. Um, and, you know, we have six stores in, in the Miami area, and each store kind of has its own personality. So we kind of let the, each store kind of shine on its own, and different managers might want to highlight different books that they want to hand sell. But for the most part, you know, we try and keep it a nice mix of what's new or what's relevant, something that reflects the current mood of the country with this challenging time we're living in. So, you know, we try and make sure there is a healthy dose of nonfiction and a nice healthy dose of fiction. So, you know, for those who kind of want to escape 
and kind of take a break from real life and or wh- able to do so. Which, which are you finding trending? Because um, we have found it having a certain fluidity uh, since the election where people seem to be having an appetite for putting things in historical context and then people just wanting to escape. Yeah, you know, I think... We sell, we're selling a lot of nonfiction current event books and historical books that kind of explain to how we got to where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also find that, and I've heard customers and staff mention that there is this kind of political fatigue because we're so bombarded, mm. you know, with news, even just on our phones. It's like, it's an unending onslaught at this point. So we, we, I think we're very mindful of having something for both somebody who's trying to figure out our challenging times and somebody who kind of just wants to have a laugh. So I see, you know, we have a healthy dose of fiction readers and nonfiction readers. Right. So you have to you have to speak to both of them. Of course. And, you know, there are some books that I kind of always want to make sure I keep front and center, um, like On Tyranny, for example, by Timothy Snyder. That's, that came out, I believe, last year. Right. And that's something, you know, it's, it's a really small book. You can read it in like an hour, but it really packs a punch. And yeah, that's he, something that's been a constant seller for us. Yeah, Tim Tim is a Yale guy, so he's he's what we might call a local author. But we too continue. I, I think that book's still on the counter. I think it's been on the counter at RJ Joya's for since the book came out. Yeah, I mean it's it's a really alarming read, but one I highly recommend. Yeah, and, exactly. So, what else is on your front table? Um, well, there are a few books that I love that I've been putting kind of front and center. Um, one of them is um, I Am, I Am, I Am by Maggie O'Farrell. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a novelist. I think this is her first memoir. And it's just, it's an incredible memoir of her 17 brushes with death. So the book is divided into chapters based on which part of her body was in danger. So for example, the neck or the cranium or a whole body. So it's, it's really ingeniously kind of drawn out. Um, and does it seem too much of a construct? I don't think so. You know, it's a really seamless collection of essays. Hmm. And when I was reading it, I, I was holding my breath basically the entire time. And her writing is so fantastic. But for example, the first essay, I think she has a close call while hiking, and she encounters a man who she very quickly realizes has been tracking her. And she instinctually realizes that she's in grave danger. And I'm not going to kind of give away the end of the essay, but it kind of makes you look at your life and think about the close calls you've had that you've kind of kind of brushed aside. Or, mm. But it's, it's a really fascinating look at life mm. and wh- how close it can come to an end. Wow. You know, it's interesting. I was a guest on a podcast called What to Read Next by Ann Bogle. And so what she does in part on the show is you tell her what you've been reading and she comes up with a recommendation for you based on the conversation and what you like to Mm -hmm. read. And the book she came up with for me is the Maggie O'Farrell book. Really? Yeah. Isn't that funny? That's funny. And you haven't read it yet? or No. I have not. I don't know when it, when the interview that she did with me will be on her podcast, but it was just today that I recorded it and she recommended the book. So it's a funny coincidence. I guess, you know, to your earlier point, that's a book that's speaking to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I do highly recommend it. It's And it, it's, it's hard to explain because I haven't really ever read anything like it. And it's so intensely personal. And there are ch- chapters about 
drowning and childbirth. And then the last essay is actually about her daughter, which in a sense is a part of her body, just like anything else. Mm-hmm. And the the close call that her daughter has. So it's I, I can't recommend it more. Fascinating. Okay, when I'm in R.J. Joya's tomorrow, I'm getting that book. That's good, good, that's good. A for sure. And what? Give us one more book that's on your front table. Um, another book that I really enjoyed that is on our front table is *The Friend* by Sigrid Nunez. Oh yeah. Uh, this one uh, also just came out this month, and it's a novel about a writer who mourns the death of her mentor and best friend who commits suicide, and she ends up caring unwillingly at first for his great dane apollo and so but it's not a dog it's not a dog book it's not like your typical um the the, the dog aspect is very subtle um and it's really a, a, a story of loss and loneliness and writing and friendship and her grieving through this bond with this dog who is the last kind of remnant of her best friend mm-hmm. you know and the dog also is grieving in his own way. And, um, and I, you know, what struck me about this book is that I couldn't believe that it wasn't, that it wasn't a memoir because it was so personal and it was so touching and so intimate that I kind of had to remind myself that this is a novel. I wonder if it's based on a real life experience of hers that she chose. So yeah, Yeah. her writing was so elegant and thoughtful that there, it had to have come from somewhere real. You know what I'm excited to hear in your talking about the book? I love Sigrid Nunez's writing, mm-hmm. and all the reviews I read of the book gave me the impression that it was a dog book. This is not like The Art of Racing in the Rain or anything like that. It's, yeah. just, it's very subtly done. The dog is kind of like a, a, device. a background character yeah. that helps her kind of heal in a way, and you know, a part of her friend that is gone. Interesting. I mean, there's great parts with the dog, but I wouldn't say that that was a main part or a huge part of the book. I'm glad you said that because that element of the reviews was put making me put the book lower on my reading list, and you've moved it back up. Yeah, I mean, it's because often, very often you think of a dog book, and it's like you think it's like a sentimental, fluffy thing, and, you know, it's done very well. She She kind of bridge that fine balance of having a dog in the book without having that overtake anything. So the question I ask all our guests is, what's the book that changed your life? Oh, that's a tricky question. There are two that stand out to me. The first one um, would have to be The Little Prince. I think growing up, that was the first book that I read that kind of made me realize what a book can do Mm. and what power a book can have. And it's such a simple and beautiful tale, and it's one that I've come back to many times. I'm not a big rereader of books, but that's one that, you know, having read it as a child and reading it as an adult are two completely different experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the one that kind of kicked off my love of books. And then I would say the other one, which kind of changed my life, I guess, in a more practical sense, is um, The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone. Mm. Um, I read that in high school. I don't really remember why it wasn't assigned, but it might have just been some kind of serendipity. And that kind of, I mean, it's the novel, it's a biographical novel of the life of Michelangelo. Right. And that kind of inspired me to um, study art history at NYU, Mm. which then I ended up working at the Museum of Modern Art. So it kind of kicked off a whole series of events. And I kind of, I always go back to that book as being 
kind of like the how that all came about. Yeah, I love that story because that really, you know, a lot of times when I ask the question, there's a, you know, any host of ways in which a book can change a life, right? You know, we had John Grisham on and he said the book that changed his life was his first book because it changed the trajectory of his career and economic life. And then most people mention a book that they read when they were young because of the influence it had on them in the way that you talked about Little Prince, the book Mm -hmm. that they were either young or they were teenagers and that gave them a, a sense of the emotional wealth that a book could provide to a reader. But I love this combination of both the, you know, changing your career. Yeah. I or, mean, it, or not maybe, changing it because you were in high school, but of creating what a, what your career might be is right. very cool. It gave me a path, like, to, it gave me a path to take, which is interesting because a book led me to art. And then through art, I started working with Toshin, which was art books. And now I'm back to the books. Mm. So it kind of was a very circuitous road. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, the other thing that I like, Gail, that you're talking about is you're allowing yourself to be open to what these next steps and these possibilities are. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of people might have these things occur to them, but then they're either fearful or worried about making the change and allowing that part of their life to evolve. And it sounds like you've done a nice job of letting those things guide you. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, who knows? There may be a book I read in a few years that changes everything again. (laughs) How great is that? That's exciting. (laughs) Well, on that optimistic, exciting note, well, Mitch Kaplan won't like that. Um, Oh, I'll I'll stick around. (laughs) You'll stick around. You'll you'll find another job within uh, Books and Books. Well, Gael, it was lovely to meet you, so to speak. This was so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, You know, you keep up the good work. Books and Books has certainly been good for bookselling across the country. You know, it's, it's doing all the things that make people love to read. I mean, the Coral Gables store is about as pretty a store oh, it's a, gorgeous as there. you could walk into. So for anybody getting down to the greater Miami area, I encourage you to stop by uh, Books and Books. Say hi to Mitch Kaplan for me. I absolutely will. And hopefully we'll get to talk again. I hope so. Thanks, Gael, so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks again to Gael. I'm sure, like me, you'll want to read some of the books that she talked about. Now let's get to my conversation with A.J. Jacobs. We are joined today by A.J. Jacobs, who's an author, a journalist, a lecturer, and a, I would say, a human guinea pig. He has written books like The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World. He's written The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. Uh, Then if he wasn't doing enough damage to himself, he did Drop Dead Healthy, One Man's Humble Quest for Bodily Perfection. And and he's published a collection of essays called My Life as an Experiment, which is an understatement, One Man's (laughs) Humble Quest uh, to Improve Himself. So now... Um, AJ is joining us today to talk about his new book, which is called It's All Relative, Adventures Up and Down the World's Family Tree. Uh, welcome, AJ. 
Thank you, Roxanne. It is uh, it is delightful to be here. And as I said, I'm listening to your back episodes, and I am just I'm very flattered to be in <laughs> in your pantheon. That's some good company. Well, thank you very much. So, AJ, before I ask you about it's all relative, I mean, these huge things that you take on and have taken on, how did you get started on this kind of slightly masochistic approach to writing a book? <laughs> I think that's a good description. It is a little masochistic, but hopefully in the end it makes my life better. So a little pain in the present hopefully pays off. Um, yeah, I, I've i always loved writing, but... Uh, I didn't have a very exciting childhood, you know, my, I, I'm not, um, my father wasn't a spy or an alcoholic or a carnival barker. He was uh, just a, a nice, mild-mannered lawyer. So I thought, if I'm going to write what I know, I better try to know something interesting. I try, try to put myself in an extraordinary situation and learn something and then write about that. So um, I've been doing that, and, and my first big one was the reading the encyclopedia from A to Z, and I actually did get that idea from my dad, who started to read the encyclopedia when I was a kid, but he only made it up to the middle of the letter B, like around Bolivia, because uh, <laughs> he had a life, and <laughs> so he, but I decided to try to finish what he began and remove that black mark from our family history. You know, I do remember... Um, I'm I'm not much older than you, but I remember we had the World Book and the Encyclopedia Britannica. The World Book was the more contemporary. It was white. And those uh, books would sit on our bookshelves in my family's house, and I considered it seductive to just do exactly what you did, pick them up and start it. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, there are a few of us out there who just love to dip in. The World Book was good. It had more pictures. It had better. It was yeah. visually nicer than the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it, I, I too have always been uh, attracted to it. And reading it, I mean, it was, it was in some ways, it was painful. And it was also painful for those around me. Like my wife started to find me one dollar for every irrelevant fact I inserted into conversation. <laughs> So, but at the same time, it was wonderful because there were so many fascinating surprises uh, and, and gaps in my knowledge, and, mm. and it was almost like flipping, like channel surfing on the you know, for all of history. And AJ, have you have you retained a lot of the information? I have retained. I would say. Less than 1%. Okay. Uh, well, so <laughs> but you knew it at one point. It's in there in the database in your brain. I guess so. It's in. Well, I will say that 1% of 44 million words is, is a lot more than I used to know. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll go with that. Well, yeah. And, and one thing that I did take away, I mean, I learned incredibly random facts that I can't get out of my brain, like... Uh, you know, the philosopher Rene Descartes was obsessed with cross-eyed women. I don't know why that's in my brain, but I can't get it out. So you've got a lot of that trivia, but you also had some bigger takeaways, some wisdom. And one of them, which I think about all the time, every day, is just how lucky we are to be alive today. Mm. Because the good old days were not good. They were horrible. They yeah. were disease-ridden and uh, and painful and sexist and homophobic and racist and life expectancy was 
it was dismal. And whenever I get stressed out about something, like not getting Wi-Fi on the train, <laughs> I try to remember this three-word phrase, which is surgery without anesthesia. Mm. This is Steve Pinker's theory in his books, right, that we have this moment not only getting upset about things that we shouldn't be getting upset about, like Wi-Fi on the train, but that the world is less impoverished, it's less violent, it's you know, all the things you were saying. And I think we get so deep into what's going on, we, we sort of lose that perspective. Right. It is so easy. And I love Stephen Pinker. I'm, I'm, uh, I love the Better Angels of Earth's Nature. And, and his new one, I can't wait for. I don't think it's out yet, but I'm, I've got it on my list. I do, too. Yeah. AJ, uh, maybe we'll have our, our little two-person book club. Hey, I'm ready. <laughs> you, name, I, you name it, I'll come up there and we'll meet and talk about how uh, we are, despite all of our problems, which are, we have quite a few. Yes, we do. Uh, it's, it's certainly better than it was. So let's get to your new book. So you decided to uh, find out about your family tree and put together the largest family reunion ever to qualify in the Guinness Book of Records. How'd you get started on this project? Well, this had a strange beginning. I got a very odd email uh, about three years ago from a man, and he said, you don't know me, but I am your eighth cousin. And I naturally figured he was going to ask me to wire $10,000 to his (laughs) Nigerian bank account. But it turned out he was legitimate, and he is one of this group of people who are building these massive family trees, the biggest family trees ever in history. And they're not just hundreds or thousands of people connected. They're millions of people all on the same tree from dozens of countries, hundreds of ethnicities. And I just fell in love with this idea, this very simple idea that humans are all one big family, and now... For the first time ever, thanks to science and DNA testing, we can see concretely how we're related. Um, And it's uh, so I just fell in love with the idea, especially in this time when we're all obsessed with tribalism and how we're different from each other. I thought this was a great uh, counterpoint to show how closely we are aligned. And, and, you know, the other the other thing that was striking to me in preparing for our conversation uh, today, AJ, is, you know, genealogy is very, very hot. It's, you know, everybody, you know, wants to find out about it. Henry Louis uh, Gates has a show on TV, and he was one of your cousins at um, <laughs> right. the reunion. But I've heard you talk about the other benefit that you see to this whole world of people increasingly becoming curious about their genealogy? Yeah, I think there are there are a lot of benefits to gene. You know, some downsides, which we can get to, but a lot of benefits. Uh, and one, I'll just throw out one that um, is top of mind, which is just, uh, I think, the stories of our ancestors. You know, it's one thing to read the birth dates and death dates, but when you get down to the stories, that's what's really remarkable. Mm. And that goes back to what we were talking about, how lucky we are to for the sacrifices our ancestors made. Because um, I read about my great-great-grandfather who came over to Ellis Island, and uh, he came over first, and then he sent for his wife and kids, and on the day he was supposed to pick up the wife and kids at Ellis Island, he missed the train. He actually had had a second bowl of soup 
uh, not his wisest move. And, uh, and so my great-great-grandma and their kids arrived at Ellis Island. No one was there to pick them up. They were lost. They didn't speak the language. They spent the night there in the, um, in the barracks, whatever you call them. Uh, and it must have been just a terrifying, horrible night. They didn't know whether they were going to be sent back to Poland. And that's just a tiny, small example, uh, not even the, you know, the most horrible. But just appreciating what these people have gone through, I think, again, it goes back to gratitude and, uh, and, and the idea we all go through ups and downs, and you've got to try to persevere. Mm. And when, when you did the—well, let me ask this question first. There's a difference, obviously, between— doing the what you know getting your dna done on the one hand and going to ancestry.com or genie.com is having done this work how does it make you feel inclined towards people getting their dna done well uh, yeah i took i did about four or five, five or six different dna services and like any technology, it's got its pros and its cons. Have you done it? I have right? not. You have not. <laughs> well, I got to say, I'm of two minds. Overall, I think it's a good thing, and uh, I think it's really interesting. But uh, but just to give you a very brief uh, overview, what happens is you fit into a little tube and send it off to these companies, and they will send you back after a few weeks uh, a couple of things. One, they'll send you a list of hundreds of relatives, like third, fourth, sixth cousins that you didn't know you had. Um, and hopefully these cousins won't ask you for money. Uh, again, there's, uh, there's a little downside. When I got my list of cousins back, one of my cousins was my wife. Oh, so Yeah, we were about <laughs> six cousins. She was pretty freaked out. I actually thought it was kind of interesting, like maybe it'll spice up our marriage, but uh, she did not agree. Mm. Uh, all right, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is that they will send you a breakdown of your purported percentage of ethnicity. So they'll say you're 43% uh, Northern European, uh, 16% uh, East Asian, and uh, 10% Native American, uh, and so on. So that is the other aspect to it. And that one is fascinating. Um, again, there are a couple of pros and cons. One is that they're not 100% accurate yet. They're getting there. But I took one about five years ago that said it came back, I'm mostly Jewish, but that I'm 14% Scandinavian. Mm. And I was all excited because I was like, great, I get to, you know, maybe I'll go cross-country skiing and <laughs> my innate Scandinavian genes will uh, propel me, but it turned out uh, it was an error. Like, over the years, that percentage has dropped to below 1%. Mm. So, so it's not always accurate. Um, and, and, but, the, but the positive that I see of this it could be a really big one, which is most of these show that we are really quite a mix, and we're all mutts. We come from there is no such thing as racial purity. So this is what I talk about in my book with Henry Louis Gates is the, you know, the idea, the hope that people will take these uh, and see 
that they are not one thing, and, and maybe that'll increase their compassion. And there are instances of, of white supremacists taking these tests and finding out they have part Jewish or part African-American ancestry, and some of them freak out and deny it, call it a conspiracy. Others actually have a change of heart. Mm. So, so that's one of the great hopes, is that it'll, it'll move us in that direction. Well, it did, you know, I was struck by exactly that, that if we all did it and we all begin to understand that we're in one little body a melting pot, never mind the United States being a melting pot, but that we reflect that, will that make us think more broadly? And have you heard from readers where you get a sense that some of that might be the outcome of the book? Yeah, I definitely have gotten some great uh, feedback and emails and people at talks saying that, yeah, they feel uh, just a little more, a little less tribal, a little more open to seeing the world as one big family. And there is actually, uh, there was a Harvard study just last year that showed that they took Palestinians and Israelis, mm. and they showed them how closely, they showed one group of them how closely they were related, and another group they didn't. And the group that was shown how closely they were related was actually kinder to each other and mm. more open to negotiation. So, and, and I've seen this in some friends and on a personal level. I'll give you an example. It's not quite as profound as Israelis and Palestinians, but you know Judge Judy? Sure. The, uh, I... I always found her incredibly obnoxious and just abrasive. I just hated her. <laughs> and then I found out she is my, I think she's my seventh cousin two times removed. And weirdly, it shifted my perspective. Rationally or not, I started to huh. think, you know what? She's not so bad. She's just Judge Judy. She's doing her shit. She's probably a, a sweet person underneath. And so that's what I hope, the Judge Judy effect as I call it, will sort of permeate. And when someone cuts you off in the, uh, on the highway, you'll think, you know what, we probably share a, a 14th grade grandpa, um, so maybe I should be a little less, uh, maybe maybe don't, maybe just give the finger for a second instead of a full minute. Yeah, okay. The, we'll, we're going to credit you with that. And, A.J., how reliable, how far out is this, information reliable? In other words, you're saying six times removed or eight times removed or four times removed. How far to those removed categories really have some uh, solidity to them? That's a great question. And, uh, and I will say just the broad picture is that scientists estimate everyone on Earth is probably 70th cousins or closer. So that means you and uh, a yam farmer in Papua New Guinea are about 70th cousins. And every, and people in your um, social circle are probably much, much, much closer. Right. Uh, in terms of today's technology, we can, I think we can accurately get up to about fifth or sixth cousin. After that, it starts to get just a, a little better, just a tiny bit better than random. Um but but it is amazing how fast these technologies are evolving. So, I mean, I imagine a future, and this could be one person's version of hell, but, like, in 20 years, you'll have your Google contact lens, and you'll go into a restaurant, and it'll do a little facial recognition on the person at the next table and say, hey, this guy is your uh, third cousin three times removed. 
And, they're uh, definitely going to ask you to pay the check, AJ. What's that? They're, they're de- <laughs> <When you get laughs> the- <laughs> That's Great the idea. risk. <laughs> there are advantages. Um, so how many relatives did you figure out you have? Well, it depends on your definition. I mean, I have, like you, 7 billion relatives, or I have more than that if you include animals, because we all do come from the same exact great 1.2 billion great-grandma, who is a little cell um, near a volcano under the water. But in terms of, like, actual relatives I can track, yeah, um, I, the biggest tree that I'm on right now has... About 125 million people. So that's how many I can. And some of those are blood. Some are um, uh, by marriage. Like Barack Obama uh, is by marriage. He is my fifth great aunt's husband's brother's wife's seventh great nephew. That is our actual connection. Uh, and same with Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, he, I'm related to the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. But I will say Jeffrey Dahmer is on my wife's. Side. Yeah, so I just it, that it's clear. that marriage thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and AJ, so you ended up organizing, you know, that you and I could relate at the end of each chapter. What AJ does is give you, by the way, you're very funny. You know, I just had so much fun reading this. You definitely have the like wise guy in you. Um, Aww, well, thanks. I, I loved it. I loved it. But at the end of every chapter, AJ gives us a little update on the world's largest uh reunion, and you were trying to get uh, the Guinness uh, Book of Records uh, to do this. And I have some sympathy, AJ, as an aside, because we applied for getting the Guinness Book of Records of having the most number of people wearing a cat in the hat hat (laughs) in a contained space for at least 10 minutes. I love it. And the documentation... And, you know, as you said in the book, the auditors and the and the paperwork and the everything to get this done was just insane. You know, it's How its own people? little business. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like you have to pay them to get into their uh – to get in. Right. And, and in the end, did you, how many did you have? We ended up with over a thousand. And what, wow. And what was funny, this was on the anniversary, I forget what anniversary of Cat in the Hat, but when we started the project, the highest record was 200. Mm. And then a week before our event was scheduled, somebody came in at 900. You know, the publisher had started this, like, game. And then there was going to be another event right before ours in Texas. You know, so you worry, like, Texas, people, you know, just, like, throngs will show up. And we were, like, biting our teeth, like, how how is this going to work? And then they came in the day before or two days before we did ours, and they were at, like, 990. Oh my God! This is exciting. So you we need to were. Write a book about this. We were. You know, we had, as you know, you had to have four counters. We had to. They had to stay in in the space. So if you had like a four year old in there who needed to go to the bathroom, you'd have to subtract them from the number. You know, so you had to limit that. But anyway, we got it. That congratulations. That's exciting. But tell us about it. your reunion. I will. Oh, but can I take a quick little detour into Cat and Hat? Because sure. I, I read it. I, you know, I have young kids, so I read it recently. And it's funny how your perspective changes as you get older when reading books. Because that book, to me, the Cat in the Hat is the villain. 
he is just a horrible creature. And the one that I um, empathize with uh, is the fish. The fish is the only logical person there. He's like, you know, he's saying, what are you doing? You're letting a stranger into the house, A. <laughs> he says, now be doing that. And then they're trashing the house. And, uh, and then at the end, one of the most unsettling things was that the kids are not sure whether to tell their parents that this uh, that they've had a house invasion. And <laughs> if my kids didn't tell me, I mean, I said to my kids, this is the worst moral ever. If something like this happens, you tell me so we can get a better security system. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, but that was a... Uh, I like a that. I like that. But yeah, I am... Uh, reading these, I, I have the same feeling about reading uh, Stuart Little. I, I don't yeah. remember. I don't know if you remember the details, but he just takes off one day, and he never contacts his parents. There's no notes back to them, no letters that I'm okay. He just goes off on his adventure, and it was traumatizing. I'm going to reread I, that. Oh, it's t- yeah. Uh, I have issues with that guy, um, but anyway, yes, I figured. Uh, like you, that it would be fun to throw a big event, and it turned out to be fun in some ways and, and excruciating in others. Uh, but I wanted to, this idea that we have, I have 7 billion relatives, I thought, you know what, why not throw a party and remind us all that we're all one big family. So all 7 billion were invited, but we didn't get 100% turnout. We oh, got about, I'm, I'm shocked. Uh, yeah, I know, sad. We, we actually, I mean, in retrospect, I can't believe what uh, the volunteers pulled off, because it was mm. hundreds of people, not just me. But we had 40 parties simultaneously around the world, all connected by the Internet. So, like, New Zealand and Mexico and, and India, and uh, there were about 10,000 people total at the different parties. Um, the main one was about 4,000 in New York, um, which was not big enough to break the single space record. So I had to, that's the, that's one key to records is it's easier to establish, to create a record than to break one. Right. So we created a record, um, of the most worldwide parties. And, uh, but it was a crazy day. It was the most bizarre cocktail of people, which I just love, you know, you had Harvard scientists and geneticists, but you had, uh, sort of 80s sitcom actors like Mary Lou Henner and magicians like David Blaine and uh, Henry Louis Gates gave a talk and and we actually brought in uh, Sister Sledge mm. to sing the anthem uh, We Are Family so, because we figured she can't do this um, without that. That was actually complicated and funny and bittersweet because. We did not get all of Sister Sledge. There are four sisters in Sister Sledge, or there were at the time. One has since died. Um, but there were four, and uh, so we got 75% of them. But That's not bad. the three that showed up hate the other one because she broke off and tried to do this solo thing, and there was a lawsuit. So to me, that is um, that shows the complication of family. Yes, we... We are family, but we don't always get along. So that really brings me, AJ, that comment about family, that did you find, aside from the Judge Judy, where you felt a little more kindly to her, did you at the, you you have a discussion in the book uh, somewhere about under a theory, you know, an Orwellian theory, kids are going to get produced by 
you know, factories. It's going to be some version <laughs> of The Handmaiden's Tale or some other um, alternate reality. And the notion of family is actually uh, about to get outdated. Right. This was one of the most, and, and the, I had been reading The Giver with my son, and that's also the plot of The Giver. Right, the, the Lois Lowry book. Right. Um, but yeah, that was to me fascinating because there are people who argue that family is actually an unfair way to split up society. Because uh, if you do a thought experiment, you know, would I, if I were somehow gun to my head, I was, I was going to save either 10 strangers in, uh, on the other side of the world or my son, you know, I would probably save my son. And mm-hmm. it's a terrible thing because it's logically, rationally, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's not, you're, you're sacrificing nine people. So family is a complicated uh, way to organize. One thing that I found fascinating is just how rapidly the idea of family is changing, and which I think is a good thing. But this idea of the traditional nuclear family, where you have uh, opposite gender parents and two and a half kids, this has, in the last couple of decades, changed more than in centuries. Uh, because you've got, you've got gay marriage, you've got open adoption, you've got um, sperm donors with, with dozens of half-siblings, um, there's group marriages is something that's becoming more and more popular. Yeah, that was a fascinating chapter. Yeah, that was, and I actually got, when I sent it to some, some friends for reading, one of them uh, said that she thought it was too out there, too racy, and that I should cut the section on sort of group families and polyamory. Um, I decided to keep it in, and right after we we closed the book, the New York Times Magazine had a big cover story mm. on polyamory, so I don't think it's really that out there anymore. Um, but to me, I love this idea that family doesn't family can be more expansive, um, and it doesn't even have to be biological. You know, there's this a great quote from Armistead Mopan. He has a, a phrase: "There's your biological family, so your parents, sisters, brothers, uh, and then there's your logical family, which is mm. the people that you." Are closest to and you almost see as family could be colleagues could be friends um, so I, I found found that very moving and, and this idea that family can be more expansive it's as my eighth cousin three times removed Hillary Clinton says <laughs> it takes a village well, uh, but you know AJ when I read the book and you know as I thought about this notion of family, and and then you sort of come to a conclusion at the end, which we won't we won't have a spoiler alert here. <laughs> that my takeaway from it was that family does matter. How you define that family is where we've come to understand that there's enormous flexibility. I mean, I think about, um, for instance, we have a Shabbos group that. We when the when so this is a group that was a subset from our synagogue, and we started having celebrating Friday night Shabbos when the kids were little. We've been doing it for twenty five years. Um, most of our parents have died. The kids mostly don't show up, uh, but we still do the Jewish holidays and. 
we would consider each other family. I love that. That is so nice. Um, and I agree with your takeaway completely. I think uh, the, the family is incredibly important. Um, you need this sort of close-knit group full of love and support, but how that is arranged is more flexible than we think. One of my favorite chapters in the book uh, is about these two women who, uh, they were born in Korea, and they were identical twins separated at birth, and they both grew up adopted in white families, uh, one in America, one in France, and they had some mutual acquaintance on Facebook who said, you guys look eerily similar. You got the same freckles, like same mouth and eyes, what's going on? So they got together, and they found that they took the test. They were identical twins. Mm. And um, and it, it, the story took a little turn because they tried to reach out to their biological mother, and she denied it. She mm. wanted nothing to do with them. But what I loved is that one of them told me she feels that she has not just one mother, but many mothers. She's got her adopted mother. Mm. She's got her twin's adopted mother. She's got... Um, She's an actress, and she has this uh, manager that she calls a momager. So this idea that uh, there is room for multiple mothers. Then I actually go into a little thought experiment and say, what if we took those two original great-grandparents and brought them to the 21st century and have them see the, the warring and tribalism among their descendants? What would they say? And in the thought experiment, I thought... Like, what if we brought them onto the day show? And I say, right on the second page, I say, imagine if they're being interviewed by Matt Lauer. Mm. And so that was a lesson in how quickly uh, the world changes can be dated. Because, uh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have to change it to Hoda for the paperback. Exactly. Um, and I will say, this is an interesting, I, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, I wrote this book about the Bible and living literally by all the rules of the Bible to show the good and the bad. Um, and, and I went on the stage show to promote it, and Matt Lauer interviewed me, and I told him at one point how I had to stone adulterers. And now, looking back, I understand mm. why uh, his face sort of blanched when I told him <laughs> that. So, AJ, I have I, I I could go on and on and ask more questions, and we're almost running out of time. But the question that no one can ever answer accurately, you take us through a wonderful exp- explanation at the end. But can you explain this thing of a cousin removed as opposed to unremoved? <laughs> I can uh, sort of. I I. I... Thankfully, in the book, if you if you want, there there is a chart. It's perfect. I love it. Or you can just look it up on the internet. But yeah, basically, the second cousin, third cousin, is actually quite easy. Your first cousin, you share a grandmother and grandfather. Mm-hmm. Your second cousin, you share great grandparents. Third cousin, you share great great grandparents. So that's actually pretty easy to visualize it that way. The removed part gets a little more complicated. That one is has to do with generation. So once removed means the person is one generation removed from you, and twice two generations, and it could be up or down. So my mother's first cousin is my first cousin once removed. So, uh, and I hope I got that right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah. 
the, I mean, the thing about it is, that's just one way to classify relatives. There, there are many others in other cultures. And, I mean, some are, there's the Hawaiian, where everyone is a cousin. You just call everyone a cousin. And so that's just a, an easy way to go if you don't want to remember that. Okay, so let me ask uh, two more questions. Of course. Um, one is, what are you working on now? What gargantuan project are you thinking of? <laughs> I'm actually very excited about this project um, that I that was due about uh, six weeks ago, so it's not going to be quite on time. But it is the idea is that I take one of my great joys, which is my daily cup of coffee, and I try to thank every person who helped make that possible. Mm. So I start with the barista, but then I also thank the farmers who grew the beans um, and the truckers, uh, the logo designers, the guys who got the steel for the truck. You know, and, and what you realize is there are hundreds of thousands of people involved in every little thing we do that we just take for granted. So it's a similar theme of connection, uh, but from a slightly different angle. I love that. I love that idea, AJ. Thank you. That Thank is, you. That's an appropriate thing to say. Thank that you. is so much fun. It is. But I mean, it's overwhelming, as you say, because, you know, you just take one thing like the cup and, uh, you know, how do you get the paper for the cup? And then uh, you've got the lumberjacks and the... How do they get their tools to cut down the trees? And so pretty much I could get to, I, I could probably get to you somehow and thank you for my cup of coffee because you sell books that inspire people. That's so sweet. And AJ, the other thing it makes me wonder about is did you find goods produced in the United States, even those that are doing business here or bringing in pieces of this and that from other places outside our borders? Yeah, that is exactly right. Nowadays, almost all products that you use are, are a combination of dozens of countries all contributing. You know, there's, there's this movement against globalization uh, uh, from our White House, but I am actually, I, I think overall, globalization has done more good than harm. Mm. So it's sort of a reminder to people that we can't lock ourselves in. Uh, we are part of this world economy. Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading that. Well, thank you. And the question I ask all our guests, AJ, is what's the book that changed your life? I actually, I was ready for this because I know it's at the end. And we already discussed uh, Stuart Little and Cat in the Hat, which traumatized me. But I'm going to say for the good, um, I've become very interested in this movement about uh, how each of us can make the world a better place just by giving to the best charities. So I actually have, there's this book called Doing Good Better mm. by an Oxford philosopher named Will McGaskill. And he is, uh, I think another one of your guests mentioned uh, Peter Singer. Yeah. Uh, and so Will is, is uh, sort of in the same club as Peter Singer. These guys who really think hard about what, can we do to, on a personal level, to make the world a better place? And uh, and he tells you how to think about it and how to, you know, where to donate, how to figure out who's actually doing good. And uh, I love that because, you know, I am still, as a human, I'm incredibly selfish and self-centered and, 
uh, you know, uh, but I, I feel that I'm much less than I was when I was in my 20s and 30s. I, I think a lot about if I met my, my teenage or 22-year-old self, I would be horrified. I'd be like, this guy is such a jerk. Mm. I can't even believe it. So uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. And this kind of book helps. Well, I, I, I love that. Now, I am a, you know, a pure through and through optimist, and I absolutely ascribe to the notion that those who give actually have it, – it's a way of making yourself happier. I mean, which makes it sound selfish. But I do think the act of giving, the act of thinking about other people just sort of rearranges our brain a little bit so that we are thinking of ourselves as one piece of a great big puzzle. I love that, Roxy. And I totally agree. Uh in fact, I think that is paradoxically one of the secrets to happiness is when I was so obsessed with my own career and my own happiness, I was not happy because <laughs> I always wanted more. So once you kind of get outside of yourself, a, there's such a, a release, a relief that you, you're not, it's not all about you. So it's a, a delightful paradox that thinking of others actually makes you happier. Mm. Well, AJ, I am so grateful that you took the time to be with us on Just the Right Book. You know, your books, every one of your books have challenged me in one way or another, and I've picked up one little thing that I think makes my life better. So you just keep on doing that. Well, thank you, and thank you for being such a great bookseller and making so many people's lives better. Thanks again to today's guest. Make sure to pick up a copy of A.J. Jacobs' book, It's All Relative. It's out now. And for a complete list of all the books we've talked about today, including what's on the front table at Books and Books in Miami, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.